Well, good morning. Good morning. It's a joy to, to be with you. Um, as, as Jason said, I, I serve at Hope Church Toronto North, and I'm not sure uh, how many of you remember. I, I know uh, COVID does this, and you barely remember what happened before, but we planted in 2019, and you were one of the churches that helped support us as we got off the ground. And so thank you for your, your support and prayers as we started. We made it through by God's grace through the pandemic. We're still going, uh, and so we're thankful for that, and we're thankful for the opportunity to come before you and bring God's word. Um, if you don't already have your Bibles open, please do bring them to Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 40. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, now, we all know the saying, actions speak louder than words. Uh, but you all seem a little bit more fancy than that, so I'll put it this way. We have this framed in our house. What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear the words that you say. It's pretty much saying the same thing, that actions are important. See, I can say that I'm a chef, but if you never see me deliver something on a plate, you'd have questions. If I, I can say I'm an athlete, but you'd have questions if you saw me out of breath as I went up the stairs. Uh, you, I can say that I'm married, but if you've never seen me with my spouse, you'd be concerned. See, you can say that you are a servant of Christ, but your words aren't enough. Your actions need to match and tell the truth about your convictions. See, Luke in this passage tells us how we can know that we are true servants of the king. See, in the passage right before, Jesus tells a parable, and in it, he describes what true servants and false servants are like. And in this passage, Jesus does it again. He wants us to see what these true servants look like, how they act. And so that's what we're gonna see in this passage. Luke is gonna show us two signs that we are true servants of the king. Two signs. The first is this that you obey him no matter what. That you obey him no matter what he asks of you. Look with me again at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. See, Jesus had started this journey into Jerusalem all the way back in Luke chapter 9. And now he's finally arrived. See, this passage begins what is the seven most important days of all of history, Passion Week. Where at the end of this week, Jesus will arrive into Jerusalem, lay down his life as a ransom for many. I had a professor in university, and he said this, that the Gospels are just passion narratives with extended intros. See, Luke has spent 19 chapters getting to the main part of the message. If you thought preachers had long intros, read Luke. See, we at uh, Hope Church Toronto North, we've been going through the gospel of Luke bit by bit for the last, since 2019, since we planted. And so we're finally at the main section, so we're excited about that. It took us since 2019, but we're here now. Uh, verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, verse 30, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. 
As Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, he turns to two of his disciples and tells them to go in and to get him a colt. The other gospels let us in on the fact that what he's talking about is a young donkey. As he gives the disciples, these two disciples, the instructions, what's highlighted for us in this passage already is the perfect knowledge of Jesus. See, Jesus knows, as the passage shows us, where that donkey will be. Jesus knows that that it will in fact be tied up, that no one else has ridden it before, that the owners will ask them a question, and he actually gives them the answer that they should reply to them with. This should give us comfort in our life. Jesus, the all-knowing sovereign king who gives instructions to these two disciples is the same sovereign and all-knowing king who is over our life. This all-knowing king is the one who watches over you. This all-knowing king loves you, and this all-knowing king guides you. See, when Jesus gives us a command, he does it with all of his knowledge. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows the circumstances into which he is calling you to walk. Therefore, he is also able to guide you, and he loves to help in that way. He does so with perfect knowledge. And he does it with perfect love, and he guides us through it. Now, the disciples, if you notice, they ask no questions. They don't ask for any clarifications. They provide no pushbacks. They go. Immediate obedience. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them, just as the Lord had said. You can take him at his word, amen? You can take God at his word. This is why we can sing songs like, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," and to take him at his word, to rest upon his promise, and to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Now, unlike the disciples, sometimes we need that grace. We need that grace to be able to trust him more, to trust him, especially in the storms of life, especially in moments of disappointment, in moments that we're just waiting. But as the disciples got the command from Jesus then, we as his disciples now receive commands from Jesus. And as the disciples here show us how to respond as true disciples of the coming king, we should respond likewise, with immediate obedience. Even if you have no idea what's going on, even if you don't know what's coming next or you don't fully comprehend or understand, even when you won't see the fruit of your obedience or his promises in this life, you still obey. Why? Because Jesus is the one in charge, not us. And so we move at his word. And when we do, it shows that we love him and we believe his word. And we need to remember, and this is true especially for me, I know this, obedience is hard. Obedience is hard, it's not easy. But obedience always leads to our good. Obedience is always Good. I read this uh, last week somewhere in a book. I I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name, so I'm not going to try to. But he says this, sometimes what is bitter to our experience is pleasant to our reason. 
Obedience might be difficult because of what we might experience now, but it is pleasant because it pleases the Lord. See, when we obey, it grows us in maturity. It models wise living. It embraces humility. It shows that we trust the words of our Savior, and it provides a compelling witness to the watching community. Also, don't miss this. If you read the gospel carefully, the disciples aren't surprised. When they arrive and they see it exactly as the Lord had told them, they aren't surprised. They find it just as he has told them. If we are honest, we aren't always like these disciples. Sometimes we we obey, we find it just as the Lord has said, and we're like, oh, (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. But should we have responded like that? We're skeptical, sometimes anxious. We're second-guessing. But the disciples here aren't like that. They have this kind of confidence, and the reason is this, because they spent time with Jesus. For the last three years, they've been spending their life with Jesus over and over. Jesus has proved that he is who he says he is, that you can take him at his word. Faith like this, a confidence that leads to obedience, flows from a life that is in close proximity with your Savior. Do not be surprised if you find obedience hard when you haven't spent time with him. Obedience flows naturally through the everyday, consistent, what seems like boring time with Jesus. Because it isn't boring. It's life-giving. It blossoms into true obedience in your life. Faith and obedience and confidence like this only happens if you are in close proximity with Jesus. So spend time with him. Spend time with him in his word, in prayer. Spend time with him through fellowship with his people as they remind you through their witness corporately of what Christ is doing in their life and what he can do in yours. Well, the passage goes on, verse 33. And as they were untying the cult, its owner said to them, why are you untying the cult? Verse 34, and they said, the Lord has need of it. Did you notice the response of the disciples? They simply repeat word for word, verbatim, the response that Jesus told them to give. If you don't believe me, you can fact check it. Go back. They don't offer any extra commentary or explanation or try to convince them of why the words of Jesus might be true. The words of Jesus are enough. And then the owners listen. They let the donkey go. Friends, notice that the disciples went only with the words that Christ gave them. They didn't go with arguments. They didn't go with apologetics or evidence, though those have their place. There's a place for those things. But we need to remember that the substance of our teaching, where the power of God resides, where he promises to work by the the power of the Spirit, is in the word of God. Let the word of Christ speak for itself. Sometimes we just have to do that. Now it's hidden for us in the English here, but in the Greek, the word translated owners of the donkeys is lords, all lowercase. It's the same title that Jesus tells the disciples to give him in their response to these owners. So in verse 33 
or in verse uh, 31, uh, sorry, in verse uh, 32, and those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the cult, its lords said to them, why are you untying the cult? In verse 34, and they said, the Lord has need of it. See, the lords of the donkey surrender to the Lord of all of creation. See, Luke is highlighting for us the royalty and the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus is the true king. That the lords of the donkey might have rightful claim over their animal, but the Lord of all of creation has rightful claim even over them. See, in that culture... Kings could claim the possessions of their subjects at their whim. However, unlike earthly kings who unjustly claim the possessions of their subjects, the Lord of all creation has rightful claim. It's a just claim over everything. Because if the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him, certainly a single donkey tied to a post does as well. Because unlike earthly kings who are limited in their authority, what they can do, delineated by borders and cities, Jesus, the divine king, has all authority because he is creator of everything. There's no limits on his jurisdiction. Jesus owns it all because he made it all. But here's where that comes home. It includes you and I. It includes you and I and everything that we have, our finances, our time, our talents, our plans for the future. Jesus has rightful claim over everything. Abraham Kuyper says this, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human experience over Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine. Jesus has rightful claim over everything. See, my parents, when I was growing up, there was an unsaid rule. Maybe some of you had the same thing. We, my sister and I, we could not touch the thermostat. One of the things that boggled my mind more than anything was when I went over to my friend's house and saw the freedom in which they set the temperature. I was like, do you need a place to stay? Like, are you safe? Is there a slipper going to fly at some point? I don't know. But... The reason was this, my parents paid the bill. The house belonged to them. They get to decide what temperature the house is set at. When the AC turned on, we just had to adjust. (laughs) Now God owns everything. We only have it just because he gave it to us in his generosity. Therefore, he gets to tell us what we do with it. All we are are just humble stewards of it. This means that Jesus gets to tell us how to use our money. Jesus gets to tell us how best to spend our time. Jesus gets to tell us what our priorities should be. Jesus gets to tell us how to raise our kids. Jesus gets to tell us how to run the church. Jesus tells us how we should work at our jobs. And all of us, our rightful response should be a readiness to give to God what is rightfully his in the first place. That if he comes to us and asks, the Lord has need of it, we hand it over. And we do so willingly and freely, not begrudgingly. Why? 
Because in all things, he is working for our good and for his glory. Because Jesus, when he claims rightfully this donkey, he exercises his divine and royal right over this donkey. It's not a random act. Jesus is doing it to fulfill this prophecy. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was exercising his right so that he could fulfill this prophecy that announced his coming as the Messiah, where he will arrive into Jerusalem to lay down his life and deliver a people for himself. He would bring salvation from our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. See, King Jesus is not like earthly kings who claim things for themselves for their own benefit. He does all of this because he is benevolent, humble, and kind. He's working to deliver us. All of his commands, all of his instructions flow from this nature that he cares for us and he's doing it all for our good and for his glory. So even when we don't fully understand his commands, even when the world tries to convince us otherwise of his goodness, even in those uncertainties, what we can be certain of is all of his words, all of his instructions, all of his commands to us flow from his goodness. It's all an expression of his love for us. This is why we can obey, no matter what he asks of us. But notice something else. Normally in that culture, when a king does come into a city, he comes in on a war horse. But Jesus, he comes in on a humble donkey. See, Jesus is the king. There's no doubt about that. But he is a king who identifies with the lowly. He calls the poor in spirit, the tired and the weary and the weak to himself. See, Jesus, he comes to deliver his people, not riding on a war horse, not to overthrow the government, but through his humility and his humiliation on the cross, establishing peace with God, he brings a people to himself. Jesus is the king of peace. Here's what that means for you and I. That we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ and through faith in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that everything will be peaceful now. We have peace with God, but that doesn't mean that there's peace all around us. Our eyes are witness enough for that. We look around in the world where war is reality, school shootings, drone strikes, corruption, human trafficking. But as Christians, we know how the story ends. Jesus might have come on a donkey this time, but when he does come back, in Revelation it tells us he comes on a horse to vanquish his enemies and establish peace to the ends of the earth. But while we wait, we give thanks. We give thanks because he has given us peace and he will bring peace and so we pray for him to come quickly. Jesus shows himself to be the king. But a king who is sovereign, kind, benevolent, glorious and humble, 
And as servants of this king, we not only obey him no matter what he asks of us, we also praise him no matter who rejects him. We praise him no matter who rejects him. Look at verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. The, the disciples, they recognize what's happening. They're probably familiar with Zechariah 9.9 and they're starting to get giddy. They're getting excited because Jesus is finally proclaiming publicly who he is. And so they honor him as king. Friends, quickly, this is a, just a side application. This is why it's worth knowing your Old Testament Bible. We're almost halfway through the year and some of us have skipped Leviticus because it's been too long. But it's worth reading and knowing your Old Testament. The disciples were only able to react this way and respond in worship because they knew it. They knew all the promises that Jesus was fulfilling. Familiarity with the Old Testament will help us understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't rush through it. It's already halfway through the year. Start again if you need to. See, they don't, the disciples, they don't have much in their response to Jesus as Lord. They don't have much, so they take the very cloaks off their back and they make a saddle for Jesus to walk on, to ride on, and a red carpet for him to ride on as well. See, the disciples teach us here that we don't need much to worship God. What God requires is a right heart. God is not looking for big displays. He is looking for true worshipers. What that means is that you might not be able to play an instrument, but you have your voice. You might not be able to teach in front of a crowd, but you can encourage one another with what God is teaching you in the word. You might not be able to give much financially, but the little that you give, as the widow's might shows us, pleases the Lord. What God is looking for is not big displays, but faithful, consistent worship, a right heart that honors him as Lord. Verse 37, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. As Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, finally, on the donkey, the whole crowd starts to praise. But it's hard to miss how it actually started. Go back to verse 35. And they, meaning the two disciples, brought, brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the cult, they set Jesus on it. This Worship session started with the two disciples who faithfully obeyed the commands of Jesus. And in their humility, giving their cloaks off their backs, set Jesus on the donkey as an expression of their worship. The closest disciples, the two, start to worship God, and the rest of them join in. 
See, the principle that I want us to get is that true worship from true servants is powerful. It's infectious. It spreads to, as verse 37 says, a whole multitude. It's a witness to those around you when you do not hold back your voice. Something I I noticed as I was singing here, maybe some of you noticed, I was turning backwards rather than turning forwards because I love hearing the voices of God's people sing. And one thing I want to commend all of you on is that you guys sing. And you guys sing loudly. And I want to praise God for that. And the reason is this, because as this shows us, worship matters. You're singing ministers to other people. One of my friends says this often, sing it for your neighbor. Sometimes we wonder when we gather together as a church, how can we minister and bless and serve the people around us? And it can be simple as this, sing. Sing, lift your voices, don't hold back. We're gonna have another opportunity at the end of this service to raise our voices again. Do not hold back. Don't underestimate the power of your witness as you sing and praise God for the mighty works that you have seen him do in your life. It's biblical. We sing to one another and we sing for one another. Your persistent worship could lead to others joining in. Now, don't miss the reason for their praise. Verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Jesus wasn't all talk. Did you notice that? He didn't just teach. He backed it up with his mighty works. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry, he opened blind eyes, he calmed storms and raging seas, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, he forgave sins. And like Jesus, his servants and his church should be known for more than just our words. Jesus was with the sick, he's with the poor, he was with the hurting. Our theology must be paired with our ministry and mercy to one another and in our community. Notice as well, Jesus isn't the one who brought up his mighty works. Others did. There's another important principle for us here. True servants in humility do the work no matter who sees. See, Jesus is showing us here that praise and recognition is not something that we should assert for ourselves. It's not something that we should go after. It's always better to choose humility. And it's always better to be recognized by others around us. Whether that be at school or at work in the community or leadership in the church. Work hard. And let others around you recognize you. Let your actions speak for you. Now, the crowds see Zechariah 9 being fulfilled before them. And so they quote Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, the psalm is about the Messiah who is the king who leads his people victoriously into the temple to worship. So the crowd, they take what is implicit in the psalm and make it explicit in their song. See, the psalm said, blessed is he who comes 
And the people recognize what the psalmist is talking about. And so they say in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes. Jesus Christ is this king. He's the coming king who is worthy of all our praise, even in the midst of those who reject him. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In their pride, they are so painfully blind to what is obvious. It's like telling a toddler to pick up a toy that's right at their feet. Have you ever tried that? Start looking in their pocket, start feeling their pants. It's like, it's right there. It's right there. And they can't seem to see it. Just like that, Jesus has been fulfilling promise after promise after promise. And here he is right in front of them fulfilling yet another one, the the king who comes in humility into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. But their response isn't that of humility and submission and praise. No, their response is offense. They're offended that the people around them would worship Jesus rightly. They're the last ones to finally come to recognition of what is happening. But look at the response of Jesus. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, Jesus, he hears them out, but he says no. He says no. The crowds are right in praising Jesus. In fact, Jesus is saying it's not enough. All of creation was made to worship him. Jesus is telling us, in fact, the rocks are holding back. They're waiting for their king's command to open up their mouths in praise. Brothers and sisters, the day may come and in many ways is already here. With the opposition and the persecution or hostility towards Jesus, that you might feel like you are alone in praising God. Whether that is in your home or in your workplace or at school. You feel like you're the only one praising Jesus. I hope Jesus has convinced you that that's not true. You're never alone when you choose to praise Jesus. See, David tells us, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And it's not just the stones that are singing. All geology, astronomy, zoology, all of it participates in theology. All of it is crying out, God made me, and he is glorious. As one hymn says, when you choose to sing, you are joining with all nature in manifold witness to his great faithfulness, mercy, and love. You are never alone when you praise your king. You're joining in with what is already happening in all of creation and what all creation longs to do and what it was made for. In fact, the scriptures tell us that praise is the reasonable response to a king like Jesus. Worship is wisdom. To hold back is foolishness. Worship is wisdom. And to hold back is foolishness. See, the rocks were holding back their praise then at the time of Jesus, and they seemingly are holding back their praise now. But Paul tells us that it won't always be like this. 
Creation groans with eager expectation for the day where they can participate in what they've been made to do. So it won't always be like this because of the work that Jesus accomplishes when he finally arrives in Jerusalem by laying down his life, dying on the cross, and saving a people for himself. Because of that, Jesus will receive eternal praise. Creation will finally sing. That would be an amazing day. Can you picture what that might be like? I've been reading a bit of C.S. Lewis in the last little bit, and he does a phenomenal job of trying to give us a picture of what that might be like. Creation will no longer be able to hold back, but it won't be just them. It won't be a solo. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will receive all the praise that he rightfully deserves. And in his day, there was those who held back. In our day, there are those who hold back. But either it will be a response, all will bow before him. And either it will be in joyful reception or in humbled just admission that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will receive the praise he rightfully deserves. And so while we wait, we give him what he rightfully deserves because he deserves it now as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would have done a work in us by the work of your spirit, ministering your word to us helping us to recognize that Jesus is the king who is worthy of all our praise. Father, forgive us for the times when we have held back our voices, held back our, our worship and our praise. But as Christ says, that if we were to hold back, the rocks would cry out. And we know they long to do so. And so until that day, would you help us by your spirit, to be resolved in our worship of you because you are worthy of it. So would you receive it even now as we sing? Pray this all in Christ's name, amen.